The time is now. Volume 4, Episode 64, this is Employment Law Now, and I am Mike Schmidt, your host. I have been doing a lot of content on this podcast on all kinds of coronavirus-related laws and rules, including eight specific episodes in the past month devoted solely to coronavirus-related developments. I know you've been dealing with a lot of it on your end and getting all kinds of content elsewhere as well. I will continue to use the podcast to provide updates as further developments and further laws come at us during this coronavirus pandemic, but I thought it might be a good time to take a brief break from that subject and offer an interesting two-part episode for all of you. I wanted to put together the great debate of 2020, pitting an employee-side plaintiff's lawyer against a company-side defendant's lawyer on a whole slew of employment law issues to see what sides and what positions they take on things like the future of at-will employment, whether unions still have a place in the United States, whether we went too far on sexual harassment training, and should employers be able to fire employees when they say bad things about a company, and what would they change about employment law if they could. I hope you enjoy this. The part two uh, episodes, uh, the two-part episodes will start today, and then I'll release the second part tomorrow. Uh, And as I said, we'll continue to provide updates on all coronavirus-related things, but hopefully you'll get something out of this special two-part episode as well. So uh, here we are, uh, hoping to take a little bit of a break from our regular coronavirus-related episodes in this current climate, and here we are in April of 2020, we're really seeing people coming together like we never have before. So I started to think, what if we have the employee side lawyers and the company side lawyers sharing a Zoom together? If we all can come together as a country, can't employee side and company side lawyers come together as well? So here to prove that that actually can happen are two great lawyers and even better people Uh, who can offer some interesting and perhaps conflicting perspective on some really interesting human resources and employment law issues. In this corner is Hope Porty, labor and employment partner with the firm of Spivak Lipton, LLP. Hope represents individual employees from, uh, from low wage workers to executives in a broad range of workplace issues, including discrimination and harassment, wage and hour violations, terminations and the negotiation of employment and severance agreements. Hope also represents unions in various industries, as well as workers in the public sector. In this other corner, we have Jeremy Glenn, who is a partner here at Cozen O'Connor in our labor and employment group, as well as being the office managing partner in our Chicago office. 
Jeremy represents the management and company side in all facets of labor and employment litigation and counseling. So, uh, Hope, thanks for uh, being here. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, and I'll try not to hold it against the two of you that you have a home turf advantage, being both from Cozen. Yeah, so I am really just going to try to play moderator here uh, and ask some uh, interesting questions. I'm not going to try to uh, pile on as a, a two-against-one situation. Uh, Jeremy, thank you for being here, too. Mike, it's my pleasure, and Hope, it's great to see you. You and I have known each other for something like 15 years now. And I have never seen you at a loss for words or ever at a disadvantage in any forum. So I look forward to the chance to debate with you a, a couple of things that are on minds of our listeners and our host, Mr. Schmidt. Thank you. And um, yes, Jeremy, continue to please refer to me as Mr. Schmidt. So um, what will be interesting to me is when I ask you some of these questions, it'll be interesting to figure out where we have agreement uh, from both of you and where there is disagreement, uh, either obvious or otherwise. But let's get right to this with question number one. And this one, I want you to each uh, finish the sentence. And then I'll, I'll start with Jeremy and then I'll move to Hope. So first, Jeremy, finish this sentence. Government could go too far in regulating the employment relationship if it blank. If it dampens the entrepreneurial spirit. What do you mean by that? Of innovation in the workplace is one that allows for greater consumer-driven services. You need look no further than the gig economy and the huge growth of on-demand services by consumers. Well, gig economy companies and workers have explored new ways of doing business. And I fear that if government overregulates by forcing this new relationship into the old models, that it will it will lessen rather than increase the spirit of innovation. Interesting. Okay. Hope, your turn. Government could go too far in regulating the employment relationship if it blank. Well, I guess I'm going to deviate a little bit from your question, and I think that government um, – has not necessarily gone far enough in regulating the employment relationship and that actually we will benefit from more government re regulation in this area. I do not think as Jeremy just stated that regulation is the enemy of innovation. Um, I think government regulation in the employment relationship actually helps support uh, workers to make sure that they can flourish when they are functioning in the workplace and that they and their work is not potentially subject to any exploitation um, and that they also are able to have uh, working conditions that allow them to feel safe and secure. And from that place, I think that's when workers can develop their work product, which obviously benefits employers um, in every industry. So that's a great answer, and, and, but we hadn't even gotten through one question before you changed my entire question and didn't follow instructions, so I do, I appreciate that. Jeremy is referring to me as Mr. Schmidt, and you're just changing my question, so don't complain that we're piling on to the employee side here. Um, that, is, that, that is a great answer, though, and I, I do appreciate that. There is this balance, and, and Jeremy, before I uh, give you a little rebuttal time for that, is there any point just to go back to my question, is there any point that you think government would go too far in regulating the relationship if it did something or if it attempted to regulate something? Hope. 
Okay, you're asking me or Jeremy? Yeah, no, because I think you. I think the the gist of what I got from your answer was that you think that uh, government hasn't done enough to regulate, or that you know regulation of a certain amount is important to protect workers, um, which is a great answer, uh, and I do agree with that to to some extent. I guess my question still for you is: Is there something that even from your perspective, government could do in regulation that would go too far, even to you? Is there some aspect of the employment relationship that shouldn't be touched even from your perspective? Well, I think there needs to be some flexibility for employers to be able to select the employees who they want to hire um, and fire to some extent. I mean, I think that there needs to be, uh, you know, enough flexibility and discretion on the part of employers to make those decisions and not to feel too restricted with respect to, you know, making decisions about employment transitions if they need to separate employees. So I think that that would be one area. So I guess I'm thinking about like a just cause standard, even though as a union attorney, we have those in collective bargaining agreements and they can be very valuable. Um, I could see that that could really uh, be problematic for employers if they're not able to, you know, again, make decisions about who should be retained and who should be hired. Well, Hope, since you extended an olive branch to me on that point, I'll do it right back to you. I think we would both agree that some states have been more progressive than others in legislating workplace standards or protections. But that does create a patchwork on a national basis, doesn't it? So that employers and employees are both left scratching their heads sometimes about what is the law in this state or in this city? Couldn't we agree that if we had uniformity on a national basis with respect to these minimum labor standards, it would benefit everyone? I think that's a good point that you raised, Jeremy, that there certainly can be some benefit to having national standards. I think the problem is that we haven't seen the federal government step in and be willing to enact some of the workplace protections that we really need to see, um, you know, in the workplace. And I think that local governments and state governments have been much more responsive to their constituencies in passing those kinds of laws, such as uh, providing paid sick leave and extended family leave benefits, kind of setting aside the emergency COVID relief we've seen. We've seen states pass laws increasing the minimum wage, um, eliminating sub-minimum wages for tipped workers, uh, providing more expansive anti-discrimination laws. And I think those are really important and significant, and I really think it's what the public wants. Um, and we just haven't seen enough activity on the, on the federal level, I think also in the area of uh, medical marijuana, um, you know, and how that intersects with employment law is, a, is another you know, emerging issue. And I think you're right. I think it's, it's very difficult, especially for employers and, and uh, who are operating throughout the country to figure out how to make sure that they're complying with the laws when they're changing. Um, and they're so different across state borders. But until the federal government um, feels uh, compelled um, to elevate some of these issues to a national level, I think we, um, I think we're going to have to rely on the state and local governments to, to do what's necessary. 
I hope you mentioned a second ago, you, you referred to use the phrase what the public wants. You think we should be a country or become a country that does more of this by referendum? Should we put, you know, these issues out to vote? Let workers and, and employers sort of vote on whether they should have this topic regulated or, you know, give a response to this proposed regulation. Think that work in the employment law field? Well, if we... I think if we could make sure that everybody has equal access to voting rights, then that would be a, a good first step in seeing whether or not we could actually further employment policies on a referendum basis. Okay, that's, uh, that's an interesting response. Some built-in assumptions there, certainly. Um, all right, let's go to our next question. Uh, Jeremy, one of the things that we always get, and I'm sure you get as well, uh, from clients, can't I just do whatever I want because the employee is an at-will employee? Uh, certainly, employment law has changed uh, so much in the last 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, there is so much more regulation. Whether it's enough or not, we'll leave for a different discussion. But there's certainly more regulation now, I think, than there was 20 years ago. Is there really such a thing as at-will employment anymore, Jeremy? Yes, it still exists, and it speaks to that flexibility that Hope mentioned earlier. Now, the law has appropriately stepped in to prevent bias or discrimination on the basis of protected characteristics, uh, and that's an important parameter to have in place. But the employment at will relationship benefits both parties. In other words, no employee is required to stay in a job beyond the time they desire to do so. They are free to leave despite being in the middle of a project, despite having a very important customer relationship. So the flexibility on the flip side of that is that if the employer loses confidence or trust in an employee's skills or abilities, then the mutual desire or the one-sided desire to end the relationship oftentimes can be a good opportunity to rebuild or restart. And so I think, yes, at-will employment still exists, and it's, it's correctly limited by the protected characteristics discrimination laws. Hope you agree with Jeremy, and, and specifically, do you agree that uh, what he said, at-will benefits both the employer and the employee? Well, I agree and disagree with Jeremy. Um, I agree that employment at-will still exists. Um, I think there's a perception that there are a lot of legal entitlements in the workplace. I get calls all the time with people wanting to sue their employers for all sorts of decisions. And always, uh, to my chagrin and my uh, practice, I have to say no, um, that there is no legal cause of action um, and that we cannot proceed. Um, so I do think employment at will is, is alive and well, but I do think it serves the employer much more than the employee, that there's almost always an imbalance of power when it comes to the employee-employer relationship. And I think the employment at will doctrine is at the foundation of that uh, imbalance in the, in the power system. I, I, I don't often hear employees calling me and complaining about um, or asking to try to make sure that in any employment agreement I may be, I may be negotiating for them <laughs> that it's clearly stated um, and incorporated um, that it is employment at will. I mean, often employees are looking for any reason and any, uh, any line in any employment handbook to get out from under the employment at will doctrine. 
Interesting. All right. So I've started this discussion off with a couple of softball kind of conceptual questions for both of you. Let's get uh, into a few more specifics here and see if I can raise the tension just a bit. Hope, I want to stay with you here. Um, Before all of this whole coronavirus pandemic took center stage, much of the discussion was about harassment and new harassment-related laws, such as training, which primarily, if not solely, focused on sexual harassment. Do you think there has been, and we're going back to really 2019 with a lot of this discussion, um, whether it was about confidentiality provisions, mandatory arbitration, the contents of uh, workplace training, do you think, Hope, that there's been too much focus on sexual harassment in these laws and initiatives to the detriment of other forms of harassment, such as age harassment, religious harassment, and other forms? Yeah, my, act- uh, my answer may actually surprise you um, to this question, but I do think um, that there has been too much attention just on sexual harassment. And that is not to say at all that there should not have been any attention um, directed at ways to really work towards eliminating sexual harassment in the workplace and obviously became much more critical in the wake of the revelations around Harvey Weinstein and and some of the other reporting and then the second wave of the Me Too movement. So yes, there needed to be immediate um, and decisive action um, to try to figure out what we were still doing wrong, um, that we were allowing sexual harassment to really... uh, permeate and flourish in the workplace. But on, on the other hand, there are all, you know, there are a lot of other protected categories um, and all types of discrimination harassment um, is pernicious in the workplace and is something that we need to, uh, you know, work on. And we need to think about passing laws the same way that we did with in response to the sexual harassment issue um, to make sure that we are, I think, treating all of these, you know, claims similarly and these situations similarly so that we can actually have a discrimination-free workplace and a more respectful workplace. Jeremy. So I agree with Hope that there was perhaps too much attention on just the gender-based aspect of harassment, but I think that was the media. I think those were the politicians that seized on that to create what appeared like too much of a micro-focused area of the law. From the HR professionals that I deal with and the training that I have done over many, many years, we realize that in a diverse and inclusive workplace, you have to have respectful treatment and appreciation for people of all backgrounds, of all national origins, races, sexual orientations, and a variety of other factors protected by law. And, and Hope, I've heard you speak on this too. You're a wonderful trainer when it comes to the inclusive and respectful workplace. He's you and you I, up. He's buttering you up. He's setting you up here, Hope. <laughs> I'm ready for it. <laughs> so you and I and the HR professionals that we deal with realize it's not just about the sexual protection. It's about a protection for all individuals and the characteristics they bring to the workplace. So if if the media needed to move the needle in this area by hyper-focusing attention on public events, I think it was a positive impact for diverse workplaces everywhere. How much do you think um, the, the question of whether a party is represented by an attorney should factor into this? So, so what I'm talking about is specifically in the initiatives out there 
um, trying to get rid of arbitration provisions in harassment cases, uh, trying to get rid of, and perhaps in some cases, allowing it with some limitations, confidentiality provisions in release agreements or settlement agreements. Do you think it matters or should matter whether the uh, individual employee is represented by an attorney as to whether we you know, allow arbitration agreements to stand or whether we allow for confidentiality provisions? Should it matter whether the uh, individual employee was represented by an attorney at the time the agreement was entered into? Mike, I think every individual ought to have the time and the space and the resources to make the decision that's best for them. So if that's an employee deciding on whether to accept a separation package in exchange for a release of claims, I think they ought to have the time and the space and the resources to make the best decision. I'm not sure that always involves retaining legal counsel, but it does require at least the opportunity to consider what's at stake. Remember, a very small percentage of these cases are what drove national attention. And in the vast majority of situations, those decisions do allow for the deliberative process. But a few very high-profile cases have created a much different light on it. And I guess my specific question, maybe I'm not articulating it as well, um, but but for those who believe uh, that you should not be allowing arbitration of harassment claims or that you should not be allowing confidentiality provisions in settlement agreements, do you think it should matter for your position on that issue whether the employee entering into that agreement was um, represented by an attorney at the time. Does that sort of eliminate the concern that the individual is signing away certain rights that he or she should have uh, in, uh, on, against the sort of Goliath company? And I hope if you have a thought on that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it should matter. I think, and I mean, I think this is something uh, that Jeremy was uh, saying at the beginning, that everybody should have, I think, an equal footing when it comes to you know, pursuing any claims of harassment and discrimination, and it shouldn't matter whether or not that person has an attorney. I mean, I think probably the evidence would show that there are certain types of employees or individuals who have access to attorneys, um, and so that may put them on a different path. And then there are other, you know, individuals who just aren't going to have access to, you know, attorneys and, and an easy way to find counsel and someone to help them. And I don't think that that should factor in, um, with respect to how these issues are ultimately resolved. If, if I may, Mike, I think there's an aspect to confidentiality that we can't ignore it may protect the victim or the alleged victim to a certain extent. So I, I think a regulation against confidentiality in all aspects, it doesn't take into account the fact that it may be preferred or beneficial on both sides. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point that you raised, Jeremy, and one of the things that really kind of took hold with the media, and I think with people who were, you know, discussing this issue about the NDAs and how they factored into keeping claims of sexual harassment, you know, suppressed and out of the spotlight, whether it was a celebrity spotlight or just on the, you know, assembly line floor. Um, But I do think that oftentimes it is the individual. I know with a lot of my clients they want to keep these claims confidential, that they don't want people to know what happened to them. They're concerned about reputational harm when they look for new employment. So 
you know, there really are two sides to the story, I think, when it comes to NDAs. And I think people were a little too quick to jump on them as always being the tool of the employer um, in order to get out from under these sexual harassment claims or to keep them quiet. I do think in many cases that individuals who were the victims of that behavior, you know, have very, you know, real honest concerns about, about having these agreements and, and having them um, remain confidential. And that may be true also, Mr. Schmidt, in the area of arbitration. If you distinguish public court action from private arbitration, you have similar concerns about how much of this dispute is going to be in the public eye for all to consume and take notice of versus can we set up a procedure where if both parties desire it, it can be confidential and yet still resolved by a neutral decision maker after both sides have had an opportunity to present their case. Yeah. I think the issue with arbitration though is a little bit different because it should always be voluntary, which is what you said, Jeremy, but in most cases, as we know, it is not a voluntary process. And I I think you're right. I definitely have clients who ask me whether or not there is a way to pursue the claim, but not to have to have a public court filing. And, you know, these days anyone can access the public court dockets. So, you know, that that could be a legitimate concern. And if both parties mutually agree to do a more private arbitration process, I think that's fine. But I don't think that anyone should be mandated to pursue their discrimination or harassment claim um, through the arbitration system. And so you're distinguishing hope sort of post-dispute versus pre-dispute. Right. I think from what I'm hearing, you're saying that that once a dispute arises, if it meets both uh, parties uh, goals to agree to resolve this through arbitration as opposed to through court, let's agree to arbitrate, but not prior to any dispute, sort of waiving our right as an employee to go to court and being mandated uh, right up front uh, to go through arbitration. Right. I think any time through the process, it should be voluntary. Um, for any individual who is a victim to decide which forum he or she may want to pursue that claim. And so in terms of the voluntary, I guess I just want to focus on that for a moment. Do you believe that whether someone uh, has an opportunity not to take the job, to go look elsewhere for another job, uh, situation one or situation two, if the individual is represented by an attorney at the time that uh, arbitration agreement is pre- is presented and has an opportunity to understand the ramifications of it. Do you think that makes it any less or more voluntary or do you still have an issue with uh, a mandatory arbitration? I still have an issue with it. I don't think at the point of hiring that an employee is acting completely voluntarily. Um, the employee needs the job. The employer has the job. And again, I go back to my earlier comments about the power imbalance between the employer and employee Um, And I don't think if an employer is presenting that agreement as a condition of employment and all you're saying is, well, the employee could reject the job and then not be employed, I don't think that's a real choice. Um, So I do not think that it should be a condition of hiring. Should there be a blanket prohibition? And what if you do have a situation where someone's being recruited uh, in an executive uh, level position and maybe they do have a little bit more leverage than, uh, you know, potentially a lower wage earner or someone who does not have the opportunity to just say, no, forget it, I'll go elsewhere. Jeremy, what do you think? 
I think that employment is not the only area where there may be disproportionate bargaining power at the outset. Think of the consumer products world where buying a cell phone or subscribing to a service means complying with the arbitration agreement. And the Supreme Court has been willing to uphold these mandatory arbitration agreements that are part and parcel of accepting the service or doing business. So the employment world's not set out on an island. Um, and if we saw what we saw last summer with law students who who bristled against law firms that were asking for mandatory arbitration agreements, there there was some collective power in those voices that changed the the future, at least in law firm summer associate hiring. So yeah. Jeremy, then, yeah, go ahead. Oh. All right. Well, I would just I would just comment on Jeremy's example there. I mean, I think there's a difference between you know, do I or do I not want to buy this particular cell phone and give up some rights versus do I or do I not, you know, do I want to work in an environment where there potentially could be sexual harassment and discrimination? And do I want to give up my rights to pursue that in court and have the full, you know, scope of, of remedies available to me? So I would, I would kind of, I think those are apples and oranges. Would you, and she has fired her first shot here in the webinar. <laughs> on the podcast so this this is good now let's start getting interesting hope so hope would you was your position that you are in favor of more of a blanket prohibition of pre-dispute arbitration regardless of the type of position and bargaining power that may exist and regardless of whether an, an individual has an attorney to review and advise of the ramifications Yes, and I think that actually might be one of the good national standards that we were talking about. Perhaps that can be one of the federal employment laws um, that will eliminate the problems that Jeremy was so concerned about uh, state by state. Oh, good one. Good one. But, but no, uh, I think a, a prohibition on pre-dispute arbitration ignores what we have seen in decades of experience with arbitration, that when done well, it can be faster, it can be more efficient, it can lead to greater certainty, and it can, again, in the right situation, provide for the, sort of the privacy of the dispute resolution. So I think a, a ban on it in all situations in employment would be a mistake, but I think the conversations will continue about particular areas such as sexual harassment, where at least there may need to be some limitations. All right, so let's move on. We've been talking about, or we started this discussion that got us to arbitration by talking about whether it's a good thing or a bad thing to have uh, the harassment-related initiative sort of parse out sexual harassment from other types. I want to move to a similar question, talking about another protected class, and that is the age-protected class. Um, do you think, and, and as we know, um, I assume most of the listeners know that under the Federal Age Discrimination and Employment Act, uh, as amended by the Older Worker Benefit Protection Act, uh, there are certain release requirements, specific language that have to be contained in a release for those who are 40 and uh, over for federal law purposes. Uh, do you think that those special release requirements under federal law inappropriately single out age as a protected class, since you don't have to have that language in releases for other uh, non-age related reasons, when the whole message I think otherwise is that those in an age group or a certain age group 
should be treated the same as those in the non-age protected group. In other words, are these release requirements that are solely directed at age releases, are they inappropriately, in your opinion, uh, differentiating those who are older from those in other protected classes? Hope? Well, I actually, I think that's a great question, Mike, and it's a very interesting way of looking at the release requirements um, under these laws. Um, and I do think, I don't think that there should be a separate, you know, category um, where certain employees, because of their age, uh, are treated differently for purposes of resolving um, an, a discrimination claim. So I think that there should be no distinction between people of different age groups. And, you know, here in New York, um, you can bring age discrimination claims, you know, anyone over 18, uh, and it doesn't you know, differentiate between people over 40 or people under 40. Um, so I think that uh, the 21-day, 7-day, you know, review and revocation period should apply to, you know, everyone bringing any kind of discrimination claim and certainly not distinguish between people over or under 40. I mean, you know, patronizing may be too harsh of a term, but it's almost like you're saying that if you're 70 years old and just because of the language that it requires that you have in these releases, if you're 70 years old, we have to put bright lights and, you know, sirens to that because you're going to have trouble understanding the release. But if you're 20 years old, you probably don't have much trouble understanding the release. It just seems real crazy and, and antithetical to the, the overall message here. Jeremy. I agree with you, Mike. You think of the name of the statute that led to these requirements. It's called the Older Worker Benefit Protection Act. And Congress, in all of its wisdom, decided in the late 60s, early 70s, that, quote, unquote, older workers needed the additional time and additional disclosures in order to create a knowing and voluntary release. Well, I happen to believe that Congress should update that because 40 ain't what it used to be. And that's not just because I've exceeded it, but because you look at the modern workforce, it includes far more employees who stay in the workplace longer because for many of them, retirement's not an option at 62 or 65. Having said that, the goal of, of leading to a knowing and voluntary agreement is a good one. So I'm of the mind that introducing the concept of time to consider and time to change your mind is not a bad idea to protect all protected classes, not just age, not just older workers. So would you have the uh, 21 days to consider, seven days to revoke, uh, eliminated for all, or you would have it for all releases? So either an all or none, is that what you're saying? Well, in the state of Illinois, we have already seen it expanded. So when it comes to releasing or having confidentiality in a release agreement, now the state of Illinois requires a 21-day consideration and seven-day revocation period. So it won't be up to me, but I do see that it benefits the concept of securing a knowing and voluntary waiver by having provided that time and space and the resources to make a good decision. Good. Let's go to a true or false question. True or false, Jeremy, I'll start with you. I'll stay with you on this. True or false, Jeremy, over time, the need for and the prevalence of unions in America will decrease. True. If I'm doing my job as an employment lawyer in terms of counseling clients that their human resources are their most important resources, then the presence and the importance and the need for unions should decline. Because it, in my experience, 
unions are beneficial when employees don't have a voice or an ear with management, where management doesn't respond to their concerns or address their concerns. We've seen a decline in union membership over the last 25 years because of the increase in statutory protections and government agencies, but I'd also like to think it's a reflection of more employers appreciating their workforce and responding to their concerns. And I know Hope is chomping at the bit just for this question, and I assume that you don't agree with his uh, true response to that question, Hope. I do not, and I don't want in any way disparage Jeremy or his uh, <laughs> legal competency and the services he provides for his clients, but may be overstated here um, in the sense that, you know, working with human resources professionals, that you're going to get to a place where workers feel taken care of by employers. Um, I think that we've actually been seeing a rise in workers um, gathering collectively to um, negotiate and demand better working conditions. Um, There are still rampant problems in the workplace. We have depressed wages, irregular and temporary schedules, uncontrolled overtime, um, lack of job security, misclassification of employees, um, exclusion from decision-making, unsafe and unhealthy working conditions. Um, we've seen this activism show up in places where we've never seen it before in the, you know, in, in tech companies with all the activism going on at Google and Kickstarter and WeWork. Um, and now we're starting to see a lot of workers um, in the wake of COVID who are, you know, being very vocal in their demands. And this is probably employees are saying that they're doing a lot for their workers, but we're seeing walkouts and sick outs. Um, by workers at Whole Foods and Amazon and Instacart and Target and major employers. And the workers are saying, you know, they're not getting the PPE they need. They're not having access to the sick leave that they need, um, that their workplaces aren't safe, that there hasn't been transparency around COVID contaminations. Um, And these are people who are saying are, are essential workers. And these are actually businesses that are based on today's headline are actually profiting, you know, during, um, this pandemic, and I don't mean that in, uh, a, you know, an exploitative way, it's just the fact that those services are in demand during this period, and yet the workers do not feel that they um, are going to be protected by their employer and that the employers are listening to what they need. And I think that is exactly the kind of environment where we see unions um, start to take hold and workers start looking for other other places to get what they need when they're not getting it from their employers. Hope, I know that's more than just anecdotal information. I think (laughs) you you have touched on something that is very prevalent right now, um, and it's insightful. I think going forward, the the voice of the employee with respect to things like um, infectious diseases and personal protective equipment and flexible leave policies is going to be front and center. But what I believe is that employees have a much greater opportunity now to use their own social networking or social media for collective action, and that we may not see the increase in having a third-party representative be part of the solution. Rather, the employees collectively as a group can make sure their voice is heard to management. Again, Jeremy, I always appreciate your optimism, but yes, I do have my ear on the ground, so to speak, in in some of these situations, and 
you know, the workers are not, as I said, not feeling heard and not feeling that employers are being responsive. Um, and if anything, we've seen retaliation when the workers speak up. We've had uh, a few of the Google workers were fired after they organized um, a protest uh, just uh, a week or so ago when there was the walkout at Amazon, the lead person was uh, terminated. And of course, these are all being investigated. I believe there's actually pending charges in some of these issues. So nothing has been you know, determined as to the actual reason for the terminations, but let's just say it's not a good look uh, when you have the leaders of the organizing movements, you know, being terminated uh, very shortly after, um, you know, whatever the, you know, the demonstration was or the, the, the collective effort. Um, so I think there's a lot of work to be done um, to think that we're not going to see some increased um, union organizing activity. Do you think, Hope, if I may uh, pose a question, um, that in light of the economic struggles of the moment, there could be a change in the um, union organizing model that perhaps says dues aren't required any longer or dues can be reduced in a time of economic difficulty? Well, I think the thing you need to remember is that dues are they finance the union's operation. I mean, that there is no, unions don't sell a product. Um, it's not a for-profit company. Um, so actually, you know, and unions are open. I mean, they've, look, I mean, unions have been uh, keeping up with what's going on with respect to employee organizing and have been adapting their models um, because people have been organizing in different ways than they did traditionally and in traditional workplaces. Um, so I think we are seeing some, you know, different approaches by unions, but, you know, the union dues are a, are a lifeline to the unions. Um, and I just know, like, for example, in the entertainment industry where you've had complete shutdown of every type of entertainment, uh, you know, forum, Broadway, you know, Madison Square Garden, every single, you know, major venue, the union membership is completely out of work and there are actually absolutely no dues going into those unions. Um, so that might make some people <laughs> happy on the other side of things, but um, that's where the money comes from in order to support, you know, the union membership and to make sure that um, workers get, um, you know, get the benefits they do through collective bargaining. And then in some industries like the entertainment industry, that's where they get their health care and their pension and their annuity and if union members are not paying dues, uh, that really hits, hits the union members in their pocketbook. So let's not, let's not go after the union dues first. There we go. There we go. And on that note, uh, it's a great segue to a whole bunch of other questions that I do want to uh, hit you both with. Questions about uh, employees speaking out uh, against employers, um, employees engaging in certain off-work activities, as well as what is the current uh, telecommuting situation that we have with this coronavirus uh, pandemic? How is that going to impact, perhaps, uh, telecommuting requests once we're all back to, quote, normalcy? Well, that was a great start, and tomorrow, keep your eyes and ears open for part two as we finish the great debate of 2020, pitting the plaintiff employee side lawyer versus the defendant 
employer side lawyer. Until then, I hope all of your labor is productive.